masses of arrests that would happen spontaneously. And you could be arrested for having a Karl Marx book in your house. I mean, you could be arrested under any kind of pretext, and there was no trial. So my parents were arrested and um, then released and then arrested again. And in the course of growing up, I lived with the uncertainty and insecurity of not knowing if my parents were going to be around or not. And I lived with the insecurity of not knowing when we were going to have a police raid with the police banging in on the door, knock, knock, at three or four in the morning. And, uh, and they would come in with flashlights looking for dynamite, you know, and would come into the room. And there I would be, this young kid sleeping, you know, and grab the mattress and look under the mattress for dynamite, as though my parents were going to keep dynamite under their kid's mattress, you know. And I lived with the pain of seeing people who I was close to murdered. And I lived with the pain of seeing people who I was close to being tortured. We were forced to leave the country because my parents found it impossible to be there and to live above ground. It was either being underground or leaving. And so we left as political refugees. And we first went to Israel and then to England, where I lived for 11 years. And it was very painful living in a new country with a new culture, really terrible weather, <laughs> um, and living with tremendous uncertainty as a young child. Alongside of this, I also experienced tremendous pain as a victim of sexual abuse and, uh, and beating. So as a child, I had lived with a tremendous amount of pain and I spent most of my adult life, um, it, rather I'd, I should say, I spent my teenage years extremely depressed, angry or suicidal. And I didn't even understand why. I hadn't even made some very simple connections around why it was that I was feeling the feelings that I was feeling. Later on, I, dis I started to have memories of, of the child's sexual abuse and beatings. I'd repressed them all because they were even more painful than the experiences I had living in South Africa. I tried to kill myself when I was 21 years old. And in the process of killing my, trying to kill myself, taking an overdose, I saw that it actually wasn't me that I wanted to kill, but all these energies inside of me, the police, my father, the psychiatrists, different symbols for me that had been the messengers of pain that I experienced. And this perception started my journey to explain life 
and to learn how to live with myself. And this journey took me through Marxism and socialism to the feminist movement. It took me through yoga. I trained with a Native American Indian healer for a while. I discovered my sexuality as a lesbian. And all of these openings gave me tremendous healing, but still didn't answer for me why. Why is it like it is? And then I came to this practice. And it is from this practice that I have really come primarily to a tremendous healing. And that's why I'm sitting here. The Buddha encapsulated his teachings in something called the Four Noble Truths. And the first noble truth speaks to the fact that life as we live it, with its changes, its rhythms and movements, cannot bring us anything other than insecurity. There is nothing outside of us in relationships, in family, in cars or in jobs, even in these teachings, as long as they're outside of us. Nothing outside of us can bring us lasting happiness. The Buddha said that life intrinsically holds with it painful experiences, unsatisfactory experiences. And I felt this to be deeply, deeply true because of my own life and how I've lived it. Isn't it true that our lives hold deeply unsatisfying experiences, difficult experiences, and painful experiences? I had always thought that my own pain had meant that I was a personal failure, that my difficulties and the insecurities I experienced had meant that somehow I wasn't doing it right, I wasn't living my life correctly. And I carried this burden for years and years of feeling a failure, of not being able to be perfect enough. And I held, in opposition to this, some kind of Hollywood notion contained in school books, TV, messages my family and this culture gave me of a stereotypical perfection of how it should be. 
of how I should be, of how my relationships should be, of how my work should be, of how the context I was living in should be. And I was in a lot of suffering living the split. And when I came to these teachings and really heard the first noble truth, I thought, yes, it's true. It's true. It is unsatisfactory. It is difficult. It's very insecure. Things are changing all the time. You don't ever know what's going to happen. Rodney talked to us yesterday about not knowing when we were going to die. We don't. It's really true. And something deeply inside of me resonated with this truth. But then the question is, why? Why? And the Buddha said, it's because of our attachment, our craving, our identification process, our aversion that creates the suffering. What does that mean? It means that by holding on to either something inside of us or something outside of us and trying to make it stay, trying to make it mine or ours, we create suffering because the truth is it's changing all the time. It's not really controllable. By pushing away what we don't like, either inside of ourselves or outside of ourselves, by trying to control or manipulate, we create suffering. So what he was saying was, it is painful, it is difficult, and it is insecure. And by trying through the process of holding, of grasping or rejection, our experiences or things outside of ourselves, in the mistaken understanding that it can be different, that it can be solid, that it can be created into some kind of image of what we want it to be. We create enormous suffering. And this was the split that I was experiencing. The tremendous pain on one hand and the idea that it should be different, that it could be different by control and manipulation, by somehow trying to, through all kinds of energies and devious means, create this Hollywood movie for myself, the kind of Cary Grant Doris Day movie where everything is so perfect at the end. We all live with this idea deeply embedded in us that it is controllable, 
that the Hollywood movie is real and that the difficulties and pain that we live with shouldn't be there. And yet, it is through the opening to our whole experience, it is through the opening and acceptance of this deep insecurity, of the changing process, of the fact that we don't have control, that brings us to a very fundamental transformation and that is where our happiness lies. Not in control, not in rejection, not in grasping, but in finally surrendering to the truth that we all already know it's not that far away from us. That's why we're here together, sitting. The truth of the difficulty, the truth of death, the truth of insecurity, the truth of impermanence, the truth that we are a process that is part of life, like the changing seasons, like the sun rising and setting, falling into night and coming back into day, like the tides of the ocean and the growth of the seed into the plant and the fruit and then its death and rebirth, that we are part of a universal life expression that we cannot actually call I or me or mine that it is just like the sun that we can't call me or mine. Coming to see this means coming to hold all that we push away. For in pushing away what we don't like, in grasping for what we want, we don't see our universality. We don't see this process, and in not seeing it, we're not giving ourselves the condition to free ourselves, to let go, and to allow the process. When the process is given space to express itself without identification, there comes about an incredible harmony and beauty of being. And I don't mean to say that the experiences that this process expresses is necessarily pleasant. But there is a spaciousness around it and an understanding and a wisdom that keeps it in the modality of healing. So over the last one and a half years, for example, I've experienced almost daily the deepest terror and pain. And sometimes it's really, really disturbing. But it's never not held in that larger context of understanding. And 
that relationship, that context provides the means for healing because I can relate to it. There is the openness for connection, for integration, and for acceptance. It's true that I have had thoughts arise. Is there something wrong? It's so painful. It must be wrong. The same kind of thoughts I had when I first started this practice, sitting, and it would be so difficult and so painful. There had to be something wrong with what I was doing. It was hard to accept that it could be this uncomfortable. And what the Buddha is saying is that the discomfort is not the issue. The pain and the terror is not the issue. Neither actually is the happiness or the joy. For they are all passing. It's not really what it's about. What it's about is our relationship to it. Can we hold it? Can we invite it? And the holding and the invitation is what we call awareness, mindfulness. When we keep saying, come back to the breath, what are we doing? We're building the capacity of the mind to hold the process, to be there with it in a non-judgmental way, to be aware, to be mindful means to start to cut away at the aversion, at the pushing of what's uncomfortable. It means cutting away at the desire or the grasping for the idea that it should be different. It's the connection, the bridge to wisdom, to the deep understanding that there is nothing outside of what is happening in the moment that can bring us deep, everlasting happiness. There is nothing outside of this moment right now that can bring us the kind of freedom and liberation that our hearts yearn for. Once again, there is nothing outside of this moment, and now this one, that can bring us the liberation we seek. This is where patience comes in because we are asked then to be enormously patient with ourselves. We are asked to become babies. We are asked to become students of life. For we are being asked to let go of the idea that it should be different, that we should be different, that we should be more perfect, that we should have a different kind of breath, that we should have a different kind of concentration, 
that we should be more successful in our jobs, better wives, husbands, lovers, partners or children. We are asked to open to our imperfection and to let go of that driving force and idea of perfection. It's very humbling to open up to our imperfection. It's enormously humbling to open up to our humanity and to allow it. Each one of us, imperfect in the ways that we are. It demands enormous patience. For when we're a beginner, when we're a student, it takes mistakes, it takes going down courses that we realize aren't the right ones. It takes time. It takes a lot of patience, a tremendous amount of patience. It takes reconnecting with our vision of what is true and allowing this connection to fuel us in a constancy and an endurance through the difficult periods. We have these qualities and we can call them into being. Patience can become our best friend. May I be patient. May I be constant. May I have the energy to endure and just sit with my boredom right now. May I be patient. Calling and cultivating the qualities and energies that allow us to become humble and to become students, to start to learn who I really am, what my process really is, and where my freedom lies. Buddha said there were five hindrances on this path or this opening to freedom. I've talked about the first one which is desire, wanting it, wanting it to be different identifying with that wanting, getting sucked right into it and acting out on it. I've talked about what fuels that desire, 
which is the illusion that there's something outside of our experience that's going to do it for us. In this culture, that means particularly our emphasis on consumer goods, relationships, particular kinds of intimacy, even sometimes how we relate to our healing path desiring and wanting it to be different than it is. And the other side or face of that being aversion, not wanting it, believing that our life should be this particular way or that, without the pain, without this person irritating me, without the ignorance, without the government the way it is, just without pushing it away. To talk about desire and aversion as hindrances does not mean to reject them, but rather to allow them as part of the imperfection. We will see our minds constantly desire. We will see our minds constantly reject. I watch my mind and sometimes it's the subtle movement of every sensation, like, don't like, like, don't like, like, don't like, just a slight movement towards or a slight movement away. It's there every millisecond, every Zip, 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 sensation that comes up. Like, don't like, like, don't like, don't like, don't like. And you watch it. You think, that's it. That's the mind. That's what's driving us, you know? The delusion that it should be a certain way, and then the mind's natural attraction towards what's pleasant or aversion to what isn't pleasant. And that's what we sit with. Opening to our humility means opening to watching our minds, constantly desiring and constantly rejecting. That's one of our biggest traps, falling into believing that desire and that rejection. It's also one of our biggest traps to reject them and not own them or hold them in our awareness. The next invitation the Buddha directed us to was working with sloth and torpor. When the mind is really heavy, it's hard to see what's going on. Again, it's not bad in itself to be heavy. What we're being asked to do is to relate to it, is to come into connection with it, is to allow it. Wow, my mind is really heavy. Wow, I can hardly keep my eyes open. Acknowledging, ah, humility again, patience, ah, okay. 
oh, okay, oh, it's okay, it's okay to feel really heavy and really slothful. And then in that relationship of acceptance, of connection, it comes into being, oh, I think maybe I should stand up, give myself some more energy, or I'm just exhausted, I need to go to sleep. That when we come into acceptance, into connection and relationship with what it is that's there, right, skillful action follows. No judgment. What's there to judge? Our bottom line is we're imperfect, that life expresses itself through us, and one way it does is sometimes by being really tired and feeling heavy. And then it's like, Okay, so how do I work with this? Often, I get up and I walk really fast. Sometimes I even have a cold shower. I've been known to stand on my head. There's all kinds of ways that we can work with the energy. Sometimes just sitting with my eyes open helps. And sometimes using touch points and going knees, our knees, head, head, shoulders, knees, shoulders, head, head, shoulders, knees, and giving myself a little exercise to stimulate the mind. And sometimes I just need to sleep. So the invitation is again to not reject the unpleasantness, to allow it as part of life, the first noble truth, allowing the Difficulty is part of life, coming into connection with it, being aware, and then allowing skillful action to move from that place. Do I need to sleep or do I need to make more effort because it's kind of getting a bit of a drag right now and I'd like to connect with myself with a bit more energy. The opposite is anxiety and feeling enormously anxious and experiencing the mind all over the place, scattered in all kinds of directions. This is really fired by the belief, if I really think about it some more, maybe I can fix it. Don't. <laughs> I watch myself. The worst time for me in terms of being anxious is in the middle of the night. I'll wake up sometimes with a problem and my mind is like totally hooked on trying to solve a financial problem or some problem in my relationship with my lover or something like that. And, it is, and it'll just be going around and around with the most incredible intensity. My jaws are locked, I'm lying in bed like this. It's amazing. It's really, it's really, <laughs> so, um, what's the word that I want to say? Uh, it's such an illusion, a mirage anxiety, because it really does make us think that if we just think about it some more, we'll make it better. It isn't true. The best way to deal with anxiety is coming back to the body and letting go of that anxious, obsessive thinking process. 
there is no way that thinking when the mind is in, in anxiety is going to help. The more Sometimes I, I get out of bed and I do yoga just to give my mind strong body sensations to work with because just lying there isn't enough. See, as long as we let go of the image of how we think it, it should be, enormous range opens up for us because then we can say, oh, okay, this is what I need to do. It doesn't mean I'm a failure. It doesn't mean I'm crazy. It just means this is what I need to do to work with it. And actually, the mind can stay in tremendous equanimity while you're really anxious. You watch your mind going, but there's some equanimity there, and you think, okay, get up. The last retreat I taught, I woke up in the middle of the night in terror. For two hours, I walked back and forth back and forth, because that's what I had to do. That's what I had to do to calm the mind, you know? Again, you know, can we let go of the image that we have of how we think our lives and experiences should be and open to how they are, open to the anxiety when it arises, come into connection with it, feel it, and in that, know, are okay. I'm going to have a shower now. I'm going to give my body something different to work with. Or I'm going for a walk. Or I'm just going to slowly move my head because I can't seem to disentangle myself from the tape. No blame, no judgment. Same with a mind that doesn't feel concentrated. No blame, no judgment, just how it is. Ah, what do I need to do now to work with this? Can we really become students? Can we really start to learn about ourselves? Can we give ourselves a space to let it be okay? What we experiencing, don't we deserve it? You know, um, working with doubt, which is the fifth hindrance, often is talked about as the most difficult hindrance to work with because doubt doesn't allow you very easily to connect with yourself because that's the nature of doubt. Am I doing the right thing? Here I am. It's so hot and someone in um, uh, the group this afternoon had said, you know, it's so hot and what are my kids doing and did they close the door and it's Memorial Day weekend and I, this is this is something something else now. I could go canoeing, and I mean, this can't be the right practice. It's too hard. It's too difficult. And it really, it's it's doubt doubt about this doubt about ourselves has um, it has a tremendous debilitating effect. And so it's very easy not to accept it. It's really hard to open to doubt. And it's really easy to reject doubt, to not want it, and then to be driven by it. 
very difficult to allow ourselves to be, ah, so I'm doubting now. I'm hot and I'm doubting. And just allowing it and coming back to the body. One of the things that I've really come to see over the years in working with doubt is really deeply believing that what is right comes from an intuitive sense that is very connected, that feels very whole and very grounded, and it isn't a head trip. And that when I feel this intuition, this deep connected sense that is very inviting and whole, I know it's usually right. And when I'm feeling kind of contracted and in my head and disconnected and um, negative and pulled, it's usually not the truth for me. And that's how I work with doubt. All, all of the experiences that life presents to us here, now, this moment, and then this moment in this retreat and outside are actually invitations for healing, are invitations for freedom and our invitations for liberation. There is nothing in our experience that isn't an invitation, a calling for us to come into relationship with it. There is nothing, no experience that falls outside of what is the field for our freedom of being for the opening of our heart. This doesn't mean that sometimes there isn't a need to back off and take a rest. Sometimes there is. It's okay sometimes to say, whoa, I've had enough. I'm backing off. But then we come to it again. Each one of us here is here because already our hearts are very open. Each one of us is here because already we have enormous amount of freedom in our being. Each one of us is here because somewhere inside of us we believe in ourselves and we believe in our possibility for coming to a very, very fundamental transformation of being, a fundamental healing. This possibility is realized through acceptance, through being aware through coming into connection with what the experience is that life is presenting us with. 
the practice of continually returning to the breath, of continually returning to the body in its different motions and expressions, the practice of continually coming back to what it is we're doing, brushing our teeth or eating, is the muscle, the energy, and the focus that allows the kind of connection and healing to these different arising experiences to happen. The more we keep returning to be present with ourselves, particularly in the body because it's such an accessible place to return to, the more we do that this weekend, the more we build up the process for the possibility of opening to all of ourselves, of deeply being able to live with the insecurities and the difficulties, with equanimity, with compassion, and with love. I wanted to end this talk by reading um, something by Sister, no, I don't know how to pronounce this, Sister Chao Nogong Fuang. She's a Buddhist nun and a member of the Order of Tiapien, which was founded in Vietnam in 1960. And she worked as an engaged Buddhist during the Vietnam War, assisting war victim, victims and the poor. I started to work for social justice in Vietnam at the age of 18. My work involved helping the poor and those displaced during the war. Because of my involvement in trying to stop the war, I was exiled from my country in 1968 and I went to live in France with Thich Nhat Hanh, who was also in exile. When I was 37, the war finally ended and I thought that I would be able to return in order to serve my country in that time of transition. When I had worked for social justice in Vietnam during the 60s, along with the other members of the School for Youth for Social Service and the Order of Thier Pien, I used the nonviolent teachings of the Buddha, which emphasized love and understanding. This was very different from both the capitalist government of South Vietnam and the communist government that took over in Vietnam in 1975. But I thought that even though our methods were different from the communists, that our mutual aim was social justice. So I thought that I would be able to go back to serve the people of my country. But I slowly learned that my friends whom I had worked with, both lay people and monks and nuns, were being arrested. Many other tragedies were coming. I realized that I could not go back, and I felt like I was a big tree cut at the roots. I almost died from the sadness. How could I overcome the pain? I felt like I was about to die, not because I wanted to commit suicide, but because every time I thought of Vietnam, there was such a big block of pain, like a big rock, which would stop my breath. 
I felt like I did not have the energy to live. So at that time, I followed the teachings of the Buddha in a very deeply concentrated way. I would always consciously go back to my breath saying, breathing in, I calm my body, breathing out, I smile. Sometimes I could not smile, but in times like that I would try to make a yoga smile. I would do walking meditation after the sitting in which I would follow the breath. As soon as I would lose awareness of breath, I would feel Vietnam invade my consciousness with many thoughts. Why are such good people my friends in jail? Why can they not come to live with me? What can I do? I did not want to go around like so many anti-communist Vietnamese saying, kill the communists. This is contrary to the teachings of the Buddha. I know that everyone has the Buddha nature and everyone can become a Buddha. But it was so confusing when my mind was not clear. So I just trusted in the teachings of the Buddha that when we're able to clear our minds enough, we can look deeply into a problem and see how to resolve it. So I kept meditating, breathing and smiling in order to clear my mind. However, it is much easier to resolve a problem with one other person than to resolve a problem with a whole country. 60 million people are unable to resolve these problems. How can I? So, I did walking meditation, sitting meditation, planting lettuce meditation, cutting carrot meditation, cooking meditation. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile while cutting this carrot. I did not allow my mind to go far away from the specific work in front of my eyes. That was all. Dwelling in the present moment, I stayed with what was here and now, close to me. While washing my clothes, I would say, breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I wash my clothes. The sister actually moved to the country for a while in France to give herself a rest, to give herself a situation in which she could really come to clarity. And from the space and from her practice, she was able to find a way to start to help those that she knew and those that she didn't in Vietnam. I felt really inspired by her story. Both with the work she was doing, with her effort, with her trust, and with her patience of just practicing and keeping on practicing until it became clear what her next step was. May each of us connect with our deep trust, our patience, and our perseverance to keep practicing and to keep practicing until it becomes clear. In this way, may we all be blessed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, 
please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.